first and foremost, I want to say that when God looks at us, God is not primarily seeing us in terms of sinfulness and guilt and what we have done wrong and what needs to be have payment made for. When God looks at us, God is looking at us as children because we are all God's children. Uh, and this is a point that uh, many on the Calvinist Arminian side would disagree with. They would say that only Christians are the children of God. But I would say very strongly, no, we are all children of God. Paul says this on a number of occasions. Uh, Jesus, all throughout his teachings, uh, refers to God as our father and even your father. Even when talking to people who didn't believe in him in any sense and rejected him, he would talk about God as being your father. So clearly Jesus was not making this distinction between the saved and the unsaved being children of God or not. To Jesus, God is a father of all, and so I want to emphasize that, and I want to frame every bit of theology in that understanding that God is treating us as any good parent would treat their children. We can stay up all night and get drunk on whiskey Or get silently lost in the field And the bars of this cage, I made them myself Hello, amigos and amigas. I don't know Spanish, but it sounds like I do now. So there we go. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. So January was one of the best months, period. The growth of the show surpassed almost the first seven months of the show of all of last year. And I want to be real clear, there was a lot of growth there. Still continue to have exponential growth. So continue to share this with your friends. Share it on social media. Tell your people to listen. Find an episode that speaks to you and just give it to someone else. The conversations that I think that are happening here and that I have with many of you online and I see a lot of you having with each other online are worth it. And so if you haven't yet, follow the show on Facebook, Twitter. I am creating a nanescent, nanescent, an incubated, I don't know what the word is, a, a, a newer community around Slack, mostly because there's so many channels that I struggle sometimes to communicate with you all as emails and conversations and messages come in. So I want to try to consolidate those. And so if you're looking for a free way to engage with everything this show has, I'm going to give Slack a try. That does not mean I'm turning off the other things at all. Really just trying to mitigate duplicating messages when I can. Uh, And perhaps you might want the same. And so you'll find links to that in the show notes and as well in the newsletter. Sign up for that at the website. Patreon support again continues to have continual upticks. And thank you every single one of you that does that. I always find it awkward to read out the names. I tried that once and it didn't feel right. So I'm not going to do that, but you know who you are. And I'm grateful for you and I appreciate you and your generosity. You're the engine, the fuel, the combustion part of the engine that makes this show continuing to function. So spring's almost here. And so really quickly, everyone's going to run to Lowe's or Ace or wherever you go. Maybe you grow your own. Maybe you have incubated seeds from last year, but you're going to plant your tulips, you know, in the winter there. They're going to begin breaching the ground soon in new growth. You're going to plant your roses. You're going to mulch that. You're going to cultivate it. And all of that work, that hard effort is going to turn in to something entirely beautiful. But we don't talk about other things that we plant. So we, we, we sow soy and corn, but we also sow wheat. And so that acronym is intentional. And so I had a conversation with Chuck McKnight, and he is just has a new acronym for kind of an overview of something different than Calvinism or Molinism or Arminianism. And, and so instead of using the acronyms of TULIP or ROSES we're go- or DAISY, we're going to use the acronym WHEAT as we go throughout this conversation over the next little bit. And so I'm really looking forward to your feedback on this one. Let me know and let Chuck know. 
uh, what you think about this conversation about the beautiful gospel. Chuck McKnight, welcome to the show, man. I have enjoyed reading quite a bit of your Pathios blog and then gradually and slowly became more accustomed with some of what you had to write. I really love what you had to say recently about, you know, Brian Zahn and a bunch of other things. So I just, I like the way that you approach things. So I'm excited about today's conversation and and welcome again to the show. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you. I always like people to give me a, a brief overview, a bit of kind of where they started spiritually or theologically, all the way up until now. Although I feel like the topic at hand, we could probably talk for hours. And so as brief as you want to be, and if not, I'll hit the magic edit button. (laughs) Kind of what is the story of Chuck? How did you get from where you were and whatever that was to now? So I was uh, born to missionary parents. Uh, We lived in Jamaica till I was 16 years old. And they are uh, super fundamentalist Calvinists. So that's kind of my general theological background. Um, After coming back to the States, I went to college at Bob Jones University, uh, which for those who may not be familiar with it, is like the bastion of fundamentalism. (laughs) It's uh, almost as far as you can get in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, From there, I went to work for Answers in Genesis, which is a fairly equally fundamentalist uh, creation apologetic thing. That's Ken Ham, the Ark Park, all that stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Although the Ark Park they started building after I was done there. While there, my views started shifting in some senses. Uh, The little stuff here and there, but the first big one that got me in trouble was uh, just considering as a possibility the idea of hell being uh, annihilation rather than eternal conscious torment. Um, Per the statement of faith that answers in Genesis, uh, I had to actually explicitly affirm eternal conscious torment in hell or I would have to resign. And after some time deciding, I could not uh, affirm that, so I resigned my position there. Ultimately got a job at Lagos Bible Software out in Washington State, so that brought my family and I out here. And uh, that's a, it's a Christian business, but it's not a ministry, so there's no statement of faith, and that gave me the freedom to kind of explore openly and honestly uh, where the questions led me. And from there, just kind of one one piece after another, bit by bit, working through deconstruction, reconstruction, kind of all at the same time. Inerrancy was like the next very big piece to to, to let go of in that process. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. So you said Bob Jones, right? Mm-hmm. So, on a, so I went to Liberty. So you would hear <laughs> Bob Jones and Oral Roberts and Pensacola constantly used in uh, in vernacular there. But I'm not... So if, if, if Liberty is a uh, 7.7 on the rigidity scale where does bob jones rank in there well liberty was the liberal college to bob jones <laughs> like for for those seriously for those of us on campus uh you know they allowed worldly music and uh didn't have a strict of dress codes and 
were too ecumenical in the speakers they brought on. So they were they were too liberal for us. Man, um, Pen- Pensacola was about on the same par, except they were even stricter with KJV onlyism. Bob Jones only used the KJV, but they allowed for other translations. Which I I believe Pensacola is a strict KJV only, but I could be wrong about that. How many years were in between? you know, your youth and you deciding to go to Bob Jones, unless I guess, I mean, there were a lot of people at Liberty that were forced to go there. I guess their parents thought that it would finally, you know, cement and everything that needed to be there. Um, So I'm assuming that that's not the case, but maybe it was. But how many years was it from, you know, there to Answers in Genesis to where you're at now? Like, how quickly has that happened? Uh, Fairly compactly. Um, Back when I was going to Bob Jones, it was definitely... uh, at the the prompting of my parents, that's like it's been predestined for me to go to Bob Jones since <laughs> the beginning of time. Uh, but I was also on the same page with them, basically in theological terms and whatnot at that point. So I didn't have any strong objections to it. And then uh, I actually started working for Answers in Genesis uh, from a job fair at Bob Jones. I got an internship, and then that turned into a full time job. So all all right back to back there. Gracious. So I, I got your your small dig there at, at Calvinism with the predestined to go to Bob Jones there. <laughs> um, so you wrote an article, and then I heard uh, Danny Prada, who's a pastor for those listening uh, that I've had on the show to listen to other to talk about other things. But he did a sermon based on, I believe, an article that you wrote, and and the article that you wrote is based on other people's work. Um, from mm-hmm. what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and it's basically uh, a new acronym or or a different acronym for what the gospel and what Jesus should look like for those that call him Christ. But before that, and that, that gospel is called WHEAT, the acronym of WHEAT, how would you define that? So before we kind of break those five letters apart into all of the theology that comes with them, what would you say the main difference is or the main definition for the gospel of the wheat as opposed to something that a Calvinist would, would say or an Arminius would say? Um, or as I read your article, Molinism is something I'm entirely not, I don't know anything about Molinism. <laughs> so um, <laughs> what would be the big key point differences? Yeah, so like you mentioned, this is definitely, um, it's my acronym, but it's based on theology that well predates me. Uh, really, I'm going back more than anything to the early church fathers, to like Athanasius and his work on the incarnation of the Word of God. That's one of the central texts I'm drawing from. Uh, I draw a lot from George MacDonald uh, and recent people like Brad Jezak and Brian Zond. The The best term I know to describe it is the beautiful gospel, which I believe Brian Zond phrased, uh, coined that term for it. Centrally, the, the main point that differentiates it from the rest is uh, looking to Jesus as the absolute, full and complete picture of what God looks like. Um, now, all Orthodox Christian theology will say that, that uh, to some degree, God looks like Jesus. But what we, what we mean when we say this is we go to Jesus exclusively for a picture of what God looks like. And in as much as that disagrees with portions of the Old Testament, for example, we're going to side with what Jesus says about God. So, for example, when the Old Testament has God wiping out people in a flood or doing, you know, ordering the genocide of the Canaanites or all these other atrocious things, uh, we might have different ways, depending on who you're talking to, of explaining that. But we're definitely going to say that does not represent God, that that is not an accurate picture of God, because Jesus reveals God to be perfectly loving and nonviolent and all these other things. And then this is a more on the the deeper theological side of that, but it definitely branches out from that core difference. 
So if I said that to a friend of mine that's Calvinist, or shoot neighbors neighbors of mine that are Calvinists, they would just say that I am emotionally making Jesus look like the God that I want. And so what would you say to someone that gives you that rebuttal to that view of defaulting to Jesus, which really, I just want to be clear, I don't agree with that, but I do want to make sure that I voice that objection. For sure, yeah. And uh, it's, it's definitely an objection I get a lot. Um, if I'm being frank, I might not say this to the person, but I'd say that's kind of a lazy response to it, because you could make that same argument about anything. Whatever picture of God you have, you could just say that's the picture of God you want to have, and you're projecting that. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's not accurate that that's how it's coming about. Um, my intention, and certainly I have my own biases, I have my own presuppositions. I'm going to be honest about that and own those, uh, and try to work through them as best as I can. But we're doing the best we can to look at Jesus, the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, specifically what Jesus teaches about God, and use that as our foundation for understanding any point of theology. One of the things that I didn't get, and most of it's probably because I haven't really gone past some of your research on it, I haven't, honestly, just haven't had the time to dig into it a lot. If this is going back to some of the church fathers, some of the theology behind this, how did we get from this, if, if it goes back that far, to where Calvin and or Arminianism started? Like, what would have caused that shift, that change? Really, the shift has mostly happened in Western Christianity. In the Great Schism, when the Eastern Orthodox broke off from the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox have more or less maintained exactly the same kind of theology that I'm talking about. Some of it gets a little more culturally specific, and I'm not, I'm not presenting this as an Eastern Orthodox view, but it definitely aligns way more with the Eastern Orthodox than with Westernized Christianity. The primary dividing point in that was probably Augustine. He had all, all sorts of ideas that uh, were heterodox at best, that, that went against what a lot of the earlier church fathers were teaching, primary among them being his idea of original sin, mm -hmm. this idea that not only does Adam's sin affect us, but we're actually born guilty of his sin and are liable before God for the sin of Adam. Uh, that's completely foreign to the earlier church fathers. Augustine pioneered that, and that would later on, with Anselm's satisfaction theory of the atonement, would be based somewhat off of that, and then that would turn more into the penal substitutionary idea, uh, idea of the atonement uh, under John Calvin and Martin Luther. And that's really where the, the main stronghold comes, that basically all of Protestantism follows. Even Catholicism kind of adopted more of that Calvinist idea in some senses, and uh, it's basically continued on from there. So the concept of original sin is, is the, well, it's, honestly, I think it's a lot of times the implied nature of every human born on the planet if you grew up in the Western part of the world. And so the the beautiful Gospels version of that would, would instead of being total, totally depraved, would call that wounded children uh, for the W of wheat, correct? Uh, yeah, per, per my acronym. That's and what. so flesh that out a bit. What When you say wounded children, what is the inverse of that? If I'm not born broken, what, well, I guess wounded is still a brokenness. So what are you trying to get at there? So, yeah, I'm contrasting uh, the the tea and tulip, total depravity from Calvinist side, uh, which total depravity kind of plays off of original sin and takes it a step further, further, basically saying that every action we do is marred by sin, that we can't do anything in any way free of sin. It just affects everything we do. So in contrast to all that, first and foremost, I want to say that when God looks at us 
God is not primarily seeing us in terms of sinfulness and guilt and what we have done wrong and what needs to be have payment made for. When God looks at us, God is looking at us as children because we are all God's children. Uh, and this is a point that uh, many on the Calvinist or Arminian side would disagree with. They would say that only Christians are the children of God. But I would say very strongly, no, we are all children of God. Paul says this on a number of occasions. Uh, Jesus, all throughout his teachings, uh, refers to God as our father and even your father, even when talking to people who didn't believe in him in any sense and rejected him. He would talk about God as being your father. So clearly Jesus was not making this distinction between the saved and the unsaved being children of God or not. To Jesus, God is a father of all. And so I want to emphasize that. And I want to frame every bit of theology in that understanding that God is treating us as any good parent would treat their children. Now that said, I do believe that sin has an effect on us, uh, but it's not so much this idea of the guilt that just needs to have payment made for. Sin is, it causes harm, it wounds us, it, uh, it leads to death, and God is wanting to save us, not only from the consequences of sin, but from the sin itself, so that we're not following down this path that leads to death. Uh, the the Eastern Orthodox would, instead of original sin, they, they'd call it ancestral sin, which is basically saying that, yes, Adam's sin has affected us all. Uh, we've inherited the effects of that sin simply by picking up on our parents, you know, imitating the sins that they, they modeled for us and them, their parents, and on and on all the way back. There's There's definitely a way in which sin comes down through the generations and affects all of us and causes everyone harm. And I'm not in any way denying the severity of sin. It's a very real problem. But we need to make sure we're approaching it from the correct angle, which is a sickness that we need to be healed from. I'm reminded of one of the very first wor uh, people that I interviewed, Robin Perry, talking about salvation as an act of cosmic hospital. And that's really a bad metaphor. Mm. It's been over a year since I talked with him. Uh, and, and, and he was arguing for universal salvation. Are you, yeah, are you arguing for that or, or, or no, with that view of woundedness? Yes. Yes. And no. Um, the, the overall paradigm, uh, of wheat is certainly hopeful universalist. I wouldn't say that it necessarily demands universalism and, you know, we'll get into some somewhat more with the later points. Mm -hmm. But I certainly believe that God desires the salvation of all. I also believe in free will and the possibility of humans rejecting God and resisting his love. I am uncertain whether or not that would be something possible to continue rejecting for eternity or potentially to the point where you basically opt out of humanity and opt out of everything and just cease to exist. Mm. I'm very hopeful that that won't happen, that <laughs> once the truth is revealed and people see God for who God really is, there will be no reason to reject him anymore. But I can't say with certainty, given free will. Yeah, no, that's that's entirely fair. And I honestly think I agree with you. People ask me all the time my views on eschatology. And my answer is usually, I'm not overly concerned with that because I have very little control over it. But here's what I hope happens. And I'm still not 100% certain that that's what I should invest a pile of my time into. Although who knows that yeah. could, that could change next year. I find sure. what I need to invest time into changes. Moving on to the H in the acronym, you call it human solidarity. 
And those two words, for some reason, don't jive in my head. They almost seem oxymoronic because solidarity to me is is uh, is a bunch of people acting together in harmony and in unison, uh, which doesn't often happen unless it's forced because of trauma or fear. And so, wh- how do you how do you take human solidarity? Like, what does that actually look like? Sure. So there are two main aspects of that. One is this idea that all of humanity shares in a single human nature and that in some sense what happens to any one of us happens to all of us. So that's not so much like a um, an act of choice to all act the same, but just acknowledging that that we're all in this together. Um, and the, the next part would be on God's side, on Jesus' side, the truth that Jesus stands in solidarity with all of us, that... God became a human, not just to come die on a cross and satiate justice, but to declare, I'm in this with you. My fate is your fate. Your fate is my fate. We're wrapped up in this together. Jesus took his divine nature and united it with our human nature so that he could bring our human nature to the divine. Uh, and this, again, this is something that the, the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches a lot more strongly than the Western Church uh, and Athanasius is really big on this stuff. Irenaeus before him famously said that uh, the word of God became what we are so that we can become even what he is. So it's it's this idea that, that Jesus is standing in solidarity with us and that because we are united with him as all of human nature, that's, that's where our hope is in. Uh, that's where our salvation lies. She had something breakable just under her skin. this is what you were alluding to earlier and this is the part of wheat that i most understand the best that's a very bad sentence but i don't care i'm gonna let it, i'm gonna i'm gonna let it stay the way that it is the one thing that i feel like growing up as a 4.19 point calvinist is <laughs> is the um is is total depravity not total depravity um is just what's what's the word i'm looking for i can't think of it the inverse of exhausted reconciliation the basically that Limited atonement? Yeah, there it is. Limited atonement. I, I couldn't come up with the L. Every view is basically a reworded metaphor of penal substitutionary atonement. And I can mm-hmm. remember when I spoke with Brad Jersak, and I remember bringing up this article, and I don't know that he was aware of it at the time, or maybe he wasn't aware of the acronym. And and I read it out to him, and he's like, yeah, I can definitely get on board with that. And so I asked him what what purpose that we had for atonement. And I remember him saying, well, you're, you're, you're framing it wrong. And I really like the way on uh, what you say about exhaustive reconciliation. I really like the way that you break out the purpose of atonement and what that is actually atoning, uh, specifically in, in rebuttal to penal substitution. And you alluded to it earlier. So if penal substitution is a legally binding contract of, I did A, and now Christ must pay Y, what is exhaustive reconciliation in contrast to that? So exa- exhaustive reconciliation, first of all, I'm I'm rejecting entirely that legal paradigm of needing uh, payment for sins in order for God to forgive us. That really goes against the, the heart of the idea of what forgiveness is in the first place. You know, forgiveness is a release from debt. 
if God has to pay the debt before he can forgive us, that's ultimately not forgiveness at all. God simply forgives, and that's that. Uh, and then just this idea of, of reconciling the world to, to Christ, to God. God has never turned away from us, but we have turned away from God. And God is doing everything that God can to to show us what he's really like. And, and Jesus shows us what God is really like and uh, ultimately is bringing us back to him. We need to be reconciled to God and to each other for all the, the harm we cause each other. Uh, and that, that ultimate reconciliation is what everything is pointing toward. I have to think you've talked about this with your with your friends and family and specifically your parents. And unless they've changed their mind, it, it sounds like they're still five-point Calvinists, correct? Yeah, yeah, they're very, very strong in that that stuff. I would think that this view of atonement, because it's really the whole reason for Easter, is is <laughs> is the big sticking point. And so, what are those ten? What, what scripturally do you stand on as you engage in a dialogue with people uh, that that are entrenched is the wrong word that are invested in the viewpoint that they've grown up knowing is true? Uh, well, I guess it depends on which which scripture they're going to use as their proof text first, uh, depending, <laughs> de- depending on where, where they're going to provide their support. Uh, I'll have a different answer for why I don't think that's accurate. Let me rephrase the question then. So what is the best scripture to support exhaustive reconciliation? Uh, so we've got like Second Corinthians 5, 18 to 19. Uh, and th- all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not uh, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Or Colossians 1, 19 to 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Then like Acts 3.21, that Jesus must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration. And that word, by the way, is uh, apokatastasios, from which we get uh, uh, this this word, this concept that is often used theologically to represent universalism. Uh, Anyway, until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets, uh, is that enough for now, or do you want a couple more? No, no, that's good. So that Greek word. So you, <clears throat> earlier you said, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Well, by the way, I, 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 tried, I don't professionally know Greek. I tried a long time ago to try to pronounce words correctly, and I I find I struggle with the English language, and so I'm not even <laughs> I'm not going to judge you at all, Chuck. On that, I, I, it's fine. I think I would call it. I'm not going to try. I'm not. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it at all. <laughs> so, how do you then use that Greek word, which you say a lot of people use as a view for universalism, uh, for or for universal sal- salvation? There's 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 a big difference, I think, between those two. And then uh, you had said earlier you're hopeful that that's the case. So, um, how do you how do you personally manage that? I'm hopeful that this is the case. And then you have texts like this that seem to show that. And I do want to be clear. I I hold an annihilationalist view or a conditional. Um, immortality view, similar to uh, Edward Fudge, is very a mirror a lot of what of what he espoused. So, how sure. how can you take these two texts that seem to seem to imply, you know, God doesn't want anyone to perish, which I think is Second uh, Peter. I can't remember where in Second Peter, and and basically God's God, so He's going to get Second uh, Peter wants. three nine. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> um, I, I don't. That's. 
Yeah, that's from that's from memory from a while. I spent a long time going into all all of that. Hell was one of the first things that that broke apart for me when I started to to break apart uh, the dogma that I that I that I believed in, as opposed to the the Jesus that I that I believed in. So, how do you how do you reconcile personally that apocatastasis? There, I said I wouldn't try it, and I did anyway. <laughs> um, with with what it sounded like earlier, you you lean more towards hoping that that's true, but not not quite knowing. So on the one hand, uh, I want to go back to this idea of inerrancy that I do not hold to. I don't believe that just because an author of Scripture wrote something down, it is absolute truth from God. I think there's an awful lot of um, human sensibilities that comes that mixed in with divine truth in the Bible, and Jesus is kind of our, our focal point and our guide to sort out those things. Now, that's, that said... There's some possibility for elements of that in in these especially apocalyptic texts where we're talking about things that haven't even happened yet. But what I want to do is take all of these texts, because there definitely are some that lean more toward annihilationism. There are some that lean potentially a little bit toward eternal conscious torment, although I think those are more bad interpretations. And then there are lots that lean very strongly toward universal reconciliation. And rather than trying to force an agreement between all of them, I kind of want to hold them all in tension and view them as sincere warnings that we ought to pay attention to, while at the same time remaining absolutely firm on the character of God and what God actually wants to happen. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, I can't be certain on the human side that every human will ultimately accept reconciliation with God. I can be absolutely certain that that is what God wants and that God will do everything within God's power to bring that about. Exactly how that's going to resolve, I can't say. I read a book recently, Faith in the Shadows. I'm not sure if you've read that book or heard of that book from Austin Fisher. And he, he has a chapter in there on hell and he breaks down all a bunch of different chapters, or not a bunch of different chapters, a bunch of different views on hell very succinctly. And there's a part where he's like, yeah, so if, if everybody gets in and so he pretends he's like, you know, what if Hitler shows up at hell or at heaven? And, um, you know, he's really upset that, you know, he's greeted at the, he's greeted in heaven by Jews and really just breaks the whole metaphor apart and, and basically argues mm. that, you know, hell for a person wired as Hitler wanted to be wired would be a hell. Like he would not want to be there and he would be like, well, can I just opt out? I would rather not exist anymore, but I can't be here with you because I'm not going to bow to some lamb. I conquer I conquer continents. I don't bow to lambs, mm-hmm. which I really like that metaphor. I've used it often in conversation. The one part of Calvinism that I always loved, probably because of Jesus, is is the eye in the tulip, the irresistible grace, because that's always ringed the most gospelly to me growing up. Of you know, mm-hmm. the love of God is so wooing that I, I I I have to come to it. There's something in that that's beautiful. But you argue for something called absolute grace, and so I. I'd like to phrase the question a different way. What do you have against irresistible grace? Consent is what it primarily comes down to. Uh, I don't believe that God controls in a unilateral sense whereby he overrides free will or forces anyone to do anything. Um, God is perfectly loving, and perfect love does not violate consent. It does not demand action or twist our arms to make things happen. So I believe that God is perfectly gracious, that his grace is continually poured out on everyone all the time without restraint, that God is always doing the most good possible at a given moment for everyone. And 
certainly extending that invitation to everyone at every moment. But I don't believe that God will override free will or violate consent or force us to do something that is not our choice to do. Well, see, the way I've always, and maybe this is because I didn't listen enough in Sunday school, but the way I always viewed irresistible grace was uh, that God's love for humanity is like the siren song. And, it, and as long as you don't tie yourself to the mast, you'll always turn the boat that direction, to use a bad analogy and metaphor <laughs> of the Odyssey, of, of, of it not being a forced thing, but a, you can't help but not turn towards me. And maybe I'm wrong with that. Maybe I'm butchering the, the intent of irresistible grace, but that's always the way, and I can always remember holding it that way. Although I will say at Liberty, I didn't really have to talk a lot about Calvinism because everybody was Calvinist for the most part. So it made it easy to not have to discuss it. Would you take issue at all with that view of irresistible grace, or am I just using those words and, and redefining what it intends? I think it depends on the Calvinist you talk to. There are certainly those who would have that that kind of view. But the overarching idea in Calvinism is that whatever the means, ultimately it is impossible to resist if you are among the elect, if God has called you. Somewhere along the lines, that has to come into play with free will, and if you're not actually choosing for yourself, that means an overriding of will. And and that's what I'm going to object to. Now, I, I hope, I sincerely hope that everyone in the end will make that free will choice to be reconciled to God, because, you know, why would you why would you not make that choice once you understand who God really is? I feel like pretty much anyone I talk to who doesn't believe in God or doesn't want to follow God, it's because they have this picture of God that is horrible in many ways. I, I know very few, well, I, I I don't want to speak for, for atheists too much because I, I don't want to presume upon them, but most of the atheists I might meet, put it this way, are atheists of the Calvinistic God, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. No, like the, I, the, I but when agree. I talk to them, the picture of God they're rejecting, I reject as well. I wholeheartedly agree. Some of the some of the favorite people that I've engaged with on this show are atheists. And as we email back and forth, sometimes phone call back and forth, I come to realize that what you say is 100% true, that, that the God that they say they can't believe in, I also no longer believe in. Yeah. And honestly, I... In a different world, had I not been engaged, honestly, had it not been for the internet and the ability for me to find other resources that weren't necessarily in my stream, I probably mm -hmm. would have been an atheist. I'm, I'm fully comfortable saying that. Although, yeah, that same part here. of that is terrifyingly blunt. Part of the, the 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 fact that I could admit so openly that that may have happened. So earlier at the very beginning, you talked about the importance of the the beautiful gospel as a view of the incarnation of the Word of God. And when we say incarnation, especially as recording this, um, you know, we're here just a few months. I mean, we're out, we're a week away from Christmas, and by the time this releases, we will probably be close to Lent. And so we will hear and think and pray on and talk about a lot the incarnation of the Word of God and what it means from Christmas to Easter. And so what? how does that, you know, if we're all wounded children, we're all human, we're all impacted by sin, you know, we're all going to be reconciled and, and, and God's grace is what God's grace is. So what does the incarnation hold for us? What's a, what's a better view of incarnation as, a, as opposed to the way that a Calvinist or an Arminius would hold the incarnation. 
Yeah, so uh, just a quick point of clarification. Uh, when I mentioned incarnation earlier, uh, I was actually referencing the the work on the incarnation of the Word of God uh, by Athanasius. It's fantastic, easy, accessible, short book from uh, an early church father. Absolutely recommend everyone read that if you haven't yet. It's really easy and accessible. You can find it free online. That's free? Uh, but yeah, That's even better. Yeah, yeah. You can find a number of different translations of it even free online. So when, when the average Calvinist Arminian regular Western Christian talks about the Incarnation, more often than not, at least the impression you get is that it's basically just about, you know, the baby Jesus, and it sort of is just the launching point when when Jesus came here, and then that really is just the first stepping stone to get up to the cross where the real action happens. You know, it, it all it all revolves around this death to make the payment for sin so that God's wrath can be satisfied and and all this stuff. And, and the, the specific importance of the incarnation gets set aside. Whereas I would say, you know, going back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, the incarnation is about Jesus' divine nature being united with our human nature, and thus our human nature being united with the divine nature. It's this this merger together, this declaration that God is standing with us, and that our fate will be God's fate, and God's victory will be our victory. Uh, so there's a, there's an awful lot more going into just just that act of incarnation itself. Really, I would I would personally point to the incarnation as the defining moment of salvation history, far more so than the the cross and the resurrection. As important as those are as well, it was that moment of joining the divine nature and the human nature that is what ultimately secured us our salvation. As a Christian, or as someone that follows Christ, when does that process of, um, I think the, the, the fancy word for that, this is a Greek word that I can do, uh, is theosis, or uh, I guess uh, a Southern Baptist might call that sanctification. Actually, I'm not certain if theosis and sanctification are the same thing. But so when... Sanctification is like theosis light. <laughs> it's like the Protestant version of theosis. It's, it's, it's distilled. It's, it's, the, it's the Budweiser of, of, of theosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Protestants are too worried about saying that we become gods and confusing that with Mormonism to go the full theosis route, typically. Which, of course, that's not what theosis is about in the Mormon sense. But the concept is the same. It's this idea of of walking with God and becoming transformed more and more into God's image. Why do you think uh, Protestantism is so afraid of that? You know, it's hard to say. I think I think part of it is just an element that for whatever reason, has been lost. It just it doesn't happen to be talked about much. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's changing to some extent. I've I've heard more talk about it in recent days than than prior, and I, I think that's a really good thing. Protestantism could use to reclaim that a bit. And I, I believe like Martin Luther actually talked a bit about it too. Uh, it just didn't really stick for whatever reason. And I definitely think, like I mentioned, the the Mormon idea of us all becoming gods has yeah. overshadowed the orthodox idea of us partaking in the divine nature to the point where when you start talking about theosis, the average Protestant just gets scared you're talking about Mormonism and <laughs> you know can't really hear it at that point. Yeah. When would that start? So th- does that process of theosis start the moment that I'm born? Does that process of theosis start the moment that I quote-unquote accept Jesus? Or when when would you argue that that, I think on your, on your writings you call it transformative love, is where you talk a lot about theosis, the T part of wheat. But when, mm-hmm. does that, when does that process actually begin? And I guess does it ever, I can't see that it ever really ends. 
It's a great question. On the beginning side, one that I can't say I've really thought about much. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say probably when you're born. Yeah, because I, I, I do think God is uh, seeking to influence us and work in our lives uh, from birth. So yeah, probably there, there's an element there. Uh, I know my my young kids have more theological insight than I do in many cases. So yeah, prob- probably when you're born, um, but certainly in a more intentional way when you make a commitment to follow Jesus. That said, I also don't want to make it sound like it's a dis- like a specifically Christian thing. I-, I do believe that those in other religions who are following the way of love that Jesus exemplified, even without knowing his name, can still be disciples of Jesus and partake in that process of theosis this side of eternity even. But yes, it certainly continues on next side of eternity. I don't really know if there's going to be a point where it's like, yes, we are fully Christ-like, or if that's kind of a infinite thing where we become more and more Christ-like for all of eternity. I guess I kind of lean toward that because God is infinite and becoming like God seems like an infinite process to me, but no hard answers there. Uh, the more that I wrestle with what in my life needs to change to better be a representation of Christ, it's always something. And it's usually a bunch of tiny little bitty things uh, that, sure. that make small little ripples that that end up being a huge river. Uh, you know, years from now, you look back and you're like, oh man, that was, it's like 27 different things there over the course, <laughs> over the course yep. of a decade. And, and you're now a different human in an entirely different place. So uh, oh, yeah. Chuck, so it's a question I haven't asked in a while, but I'm curious because I like, I like the way that your mind works. What do you think would be the biggest thing that if, if anyone was listening, that they could change tomorrow that would be both hard, but also generative to, to better the world that we live in and around. And I don't necessarily mean that for the church. I just mean that for humanity. Like what would be as a Christian or as a non-Christian, one thing that we could intentionally do uh, to, to make the world a better and a more generative place? Hmm. That's a really good question. It feels like an awfully broad question. Is it okay if I go totally outside of the stuff we're talking about right now? Absolutely. You could literally say root for the Browns for all I care, and it would totally be fine. (laughs) Don't say that, though, but you you could say that. I'm going to say, especially in today's geopolitical climate, um, and especially for straight white Christian males like myself, the most important thing we can do is to start truly listening to the marginalized and the oppressed and stop speaking over them and telling them, how they should be experiencing things, really listen to them and follow through on their advice for how to help them uh, and how to make this world a better place for everyone. Mm. Listen with intention and then be man enough or woman enough to actually do what they ask for. When I ask you what you need for help, yeah, do what yeah, you don't, do with don't, don't assume that, that uh, again, I, I'm talking mainly about people of privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't assume that we need to come in as the saviors with our ideas and decide how how the marginalized should seek justice. I like that. I like that a lot. Chuck, where can people get more of of you? I know that you have a book that you're writing specifically on this topic for people that want to blow it up. And I do want to be clear, I have pages and pages and pages of questions, but to go over five <laughs> very high-level, broad theological topics in under an hour is more difficult than I intended. Um, we should maybe do well, five hey, s- different Well, hey, send me those pages of questions, and uh, <laughs> that'll help refine my process for writing the book. Seriously. That, well, that's okay. I will. I can. Yeah, awesome. 
And uh, I'm co-authoring that, by the way, uh, with my friend Keith Giles. Uh, he's helping me flesh it flesh it out into a full length book. Keith is great. Yeah, Keith I've had the great. I've had the privilege to talk with him twice. Um, I love his stuff, and and I really like the fact that he doesn't often argue with people. Uh, I don't honestly know how he constrains himself. Oftentimes, he's an incredibly gracious soul. I don't know many people who have his level of patience. I, I certainly don't. I just I just turn everything off and, and go to sleep. So, <laughs> uh, well, Chuck, where can people uh, engage with you, interact with you, uh, and get more of you? Uh, so definitely the Pathios blog, Happy Heretic. Uh, if you go to happyheretic.com, that'll take you there. And then on social media, I'm most active on Facebook. You can just search my name, Chuck McKnight. And uh, as long as you look like a real person, I'll generally accept friend requests and start a conversation. <laughs> what, what, what are the qualifications for looking like a real person? <laughs> uh, as long as you look well, like you, a Well, you get plenty of spammy, spammy <laughs> things that um, are fairly apparent. They're either a sex ad or someone trying to scam you out of money over in some other country. Mm-hmm. But but if you have a real profile picture and content that lets me know you're a real human that's somewhere in the realm of conversation that I am, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to add pretty much anyone and start talking. That's I just never heard it said like that. Prove it. You sh- <laughs> so you should just have like a. I know when you make a Facebook group, you can add questions, and you should just add that for a, f- a friend request. I wish there was a way. <laughs> there you go. Are you an actual human? Check I mean, it's, it's. I feel like it's usually pretty obvious when you see someone's profile if, if they're uh, <laughs> legit or not. I agree. I agree. Well, Chuck, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. People dancing in the breeze. The This whole conversation would take like 10 hours to actually do well. There are a few resources that I would recommend. Uh, One would be prior guest of the show, Danny Prada. He did a sermon like over a year ago or possibly, he did a sermon a while back, maybe last summer on this topic. And it's as brief as this conversation, but takes it in a different direction, more from a pastoral mindset, preached to a congregation. And so I would encourage you to listen to that. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, as well as you'll see a link to the beginning of some of Chuck's writing that we referenced off and on throughout this entire conversation. Go and read those. Wrestle with it. There are many, many links to other books and topics and conversations and resources dealing with the beautiful gospel, as it's been coined, in those articles. And so do that. The music today was used with permission from Alice Bassano. You'll find links to her music in the show notes, links to her website also there, and as well as the tracks featured today will be on the Spotify playlist called... Can I say this at church? There's a place in my mind. It's a shelter from.